This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Heavenly Father, as we just sang, um, we, we come to this time in our service where we, where we go to look at your word, where we want to see and learn and hear about your everlasting love, the vastness of your grace and mercy, the depth of your power. So, Father, we, we pray that you would do that for us, that you would open our ears and soften our hearts to, to hear about you, about your glory, and that we would, in turn, um, have a, a larger desire to worship you. Father, it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, we made it. This will be our last message in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, we'll spend most of our time this morning in Jeremiah chapter 44, uh, but we're, we're going to start in Jeremiah 42 if you want to start heading there in your Bibles, Jeremiah 42. And if you're wondering why I say this is the last message in Jeremiah when there's technically eight chapters left, uh, the reason is because all the chapters 45 through 52 of Jeremiah were either written by other people or Jeremiah wrote them before Jeremiah 44. So, I thought this would be a good place to wrap up this book with Jeremiah's last words. Not to mention, uh, there couldn't be a better chapter to finish Jeremiah on uh, than chapter 44 because it perfectly sums up this book. Perfectly. But before we go there, if you'll remember, last week we were in Jeremiah chapter 39 where we saw the actual fall of Jerusalem. Everything that God had promised, everything Jeremiah had prophesied came true. The city has fallen, all the leaders have either been executed or captured, and everyone else has been taken into exile. End scene, close curtains, roll credits. But you know those little clips that movies have nowadays kind of in the middle of the credits? Um, the, like the credits play for a minute and there's a little, a little scene. Those are called credit cookies. Credit cookies. And Jeremiah chapter 4 is kind of like a credit cookie. You see, if you'll remember, there were a handful of people that were left in Jerusalem, including Jeremiah. And Jeremiah 44 is about what happened to them. But in order to understand what's going on in Jeremiah 44 about them, we need to see what happened in Jeremiah 42. So let me set the scene for you, what's going on in Jeremiah 42. Again, Babylon has just crushed Jerusalem. He's taken most of the people into exile, but the few people that are left are, are now somewhere between worried and terrified. Uh, if you'll remember Gedaliah, uh, Jeremiah's only friend, well, these people have just killed him because Nebuchadnezzar put him in charge of Jerusalem when he left. So the people that are left are, are terrified that Babylon is going to return and slaughter them, especially because of what they did to Gedaliah, the people that... Nebuchadnezzar put in charge. And in addition to all that, they've been under siege for almost two years. So they don't have any crops planted. Everything in the surrounding area is completely trampled. So they're really worried about famine and starvation. So with that as the setting, what happens is in the first six verses of chapter 42, the people who are left ask Jeremiah to pray to God to tell them what to do. They said, if you look at verse 2, they said to Jeremiah, <clears throat> Let our plea for mercy come before you and pray to the Lord your God for us, for all this remnant, 
because we are left with but a few as your eyes see us, that the Lord your God may show us the way we should go and the thing that we should do. So Jeremiah agreed, and the people said, and dropping down to verse 5, they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us. If we, are, if we do not act according to all the word with which the Lord God sends you to us, whether it is good or bad, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God, to whom we are sending you, that it may be well with us when we obey the vo voice of the Lord our God. So Jeremiah went and prayed, the next few verses tell us, for about 10 days. And, and then he comes back and tells the people what God said. And, and, and the bottom line is, basically God said, stay in Jerusalem. He said, if you'll stay here in this land, I'll be with you. I'll provide for you. I'll protect you. You won't have to worry about the Babylonians. Everything will be okay. Stay here. However, after that, God added, beginning in about verse 13 of chapter 42, he said, if you disobey and you don't stay here and you go to Egypt, everything that has happened, all this famine and, and, and war and everything you're worried about, all of that is going to follow you there. If you go to Egypt, I'll make sure all of this happens to you in Egypt. If, if you look at verse 14, God says, if you say no to what I tell you, if you say no, we will go to the land of Egypt where we shall not see war or hear the sound of the trumpet or be hungry for bread, and we will dwell there. Then hear the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, if you set your faces to enter Egypt and go to live there, then the sword that you, shall, that you fear shall overtake you in the land of Egypt, and the famine of which you are afraid shall follow close after you to Egypt, and there you shall die. He says in verse 18, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as my anger and my wrath were poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so my wrath will be poured out on you when you go to Egypt. You shall become an execration, a horror, a curse, and a taunt. You shall see this place no more. The Lord said to you, O remnant of Judah, do not go to Egypt. So to sum up, chapter 42, no matter what you do, don't go to Egypt. With that in mind, flip the page or two to the right. Let's go to Jeremiah 44 and look at chapter 1, or verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Judeans who lived in the land of Egypt. Yep, that's where we are. All of it. That's what they did. And that's why this is such a great chapter to conclude Jeremiah. It's a perfect summary of what this whole book is about. After all the warnings, after all the history, after all the threats and all the prophecies of destruction, still not trusting God, but more importantly, still idolatrous. That's what Jeremiah 44 is all about. This phrase, you'll see it, making offerings or serving other gods, that phrase is used 19 times in this chapter. So what I want to do is I want to go through chapter 44 so we can understand what's going on, and then we'll circle back and see what it means to us. So first, what I want you to notice in verses 1 through 14 is how Jeremiah describes the disregard of idolatry. The disregard of idolatry. We'll pick up in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, You have seen all the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem, 
and upon all the cities of Judah, behold, this day they are a desolation and no one dwells in them because of the evil that they committed, provoking me to anger in that they went to make offerings and to serve other gods that they knew not, neither they nor you nor your fathers. Yet I persistently sent to you all my servants, the prophets, saying, Oh, do not do this abomination that I hate. But they did not listen or incline their ear to turn from their evil and make no offerings to other gods. Therefore, my wrath and my anger were poured out and kindled in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, and they became a waste and a desolation as at this day. And now, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, why do you commit this great evil against yourselves to cut you off uh, from you, man and woman, infant and child, from the midst of Judah, leaving you no remnant? Why do you provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, making offerings to other gods in the land of Egypt, where you have come to live, so that you may be cut off and become a curse and a taunt among the nations of the earth? Have you forgotten the evil your fathers, the evil of the kings of Judah, the evil of their wives, your own evil? and the evil your wives which they committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? They have not humbled themselves even to this day, nor have they feared nor walked in my law and statutes that I set before you and before your fathers. Therefore, verse 11, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will set my face against you for harm to cut off all Judah. I will take the remnant of Judah who have set their faces to come to the land of Egypt to live, and they shall all be consumed. In the land of Egypt they shall fall by the sword and by famine. They shall be consumed. From the least to the greatest they shall die by the sword and by famine. And they shall become an oath, a horror, a curse, and a taunt. I will punish those who dwell in the land of Egypt as I have punished Jerusalem with the sword and with famine and with pestilence. You picking up on a theme here? So that none in the, of the remnant of Judah who have come to live in the land of Egypt shall escape or survive or return to the land of Judah to which they desire to return, to dwell there, for they shall not return except some fugitives. So now to summarize verses 1 through 14, it's basically broken up, to th broken up in three parts that are, that are noted by the phrase, thus says the Lord of hosts. And those three parts basically form a past, present, future argument. In the first section, in the past, the Lord of hosts says in verses 1 through 6, you saw what happened in Jerusalem. You saw all the evil that your fathers did, the destruction that, that came because of it, they did, because they didn't listen to my, my, my repeated warnings not to make offerings to other gods. You saw that. Therefore, in the second section, in the present... The Lord of hosts asks them in verses 7 through 10, So why do you keep disobeying and making offerings to other gods in Egypt? I mean, have you forgotten what just happened? Have they? Let's answer the question. Have they forgotten? Of course they haven't forgotten. It's those horrific events is why they're in Egypt. They hadn't forgotten. I mean, God himself just said in verse 2, You have seen the devastation I brought. So God's asking a rhetorical question here. Like, it's crazy what you're doing. Hold on to that for a minute. We're going to come back to that question. But that leads us to the third section, the future, where the Lord of hosts says in verses 11 through 14, Therefore, because you're doing the same thing and disregarding what you saw, I'm going to do everything I said I would do. Everything you were worried about happening to you in Jerusalem is going to happen to you here. You will die by the sword and famine. He repeats that four times. 
They hadn't paid attention. They, they completely disregarded what had happened before and were doing it all over again. Now I wonder if I asked you right now to make a list of idols you've worshipped in the past. How long might that list be? Oh, miles long, Pastor Grant. You know, like Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. Great, so what are they? List them right now, specifically in your mind. The idols that you've worshipped in the past. Oh, well, you know, I'd have to sit down and think about it for a while. I can't think of them all right off the top of my head. Exactly. The disregard of idolatry. Our idolatry doesn't seem to stick to us. It fades in our memory. Let me give you an example of, of something that might have already faded from your memory that happened yesterday. Have you ever been angry at someone for how they treated you? That's idolatry. Have you ever been upset that you couldn't do what you wanted or things didn't go your way? That's idolatry. Have you ever lied to someone to keep, them, to keep yourself from getting in trouble? That's idolatry. Need I go on? That's just an example of one idol, namely ourselves. But again, that idolatry, it doesn't seem to stick to us. We, we disregard it. We, we forget the consequences that idolatry causes. Sure, maybe we haven't been conquered and exiled by an enemy country. Maybe that hasn't happened to us. But, but not only do we disregard the insult that we make to God, but, but we disregard the, the broken relationships, the lost opportunities to share the gospel, the poor influence that we have on people when we worship idols. Which begs the question, why? Why do those refugees in Jeremiah 44 disregard their idolatry? Why does it fade from their memory? Well, notice in verses 15 through 19, Jeremiah describes the deception of idolatry. It's the deception of idolatry. God just finished saying, why are you doing this? And then, and then saying, I'm going to, to destroy you. Verse 15, then all the men who knew that their wives had made offerings to other gods and all the women who stood by a great assembly, all the people who lived in Pathros in the land of Egypt, answered Jeremiah, As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. But we will do everything that we have vowed, make offerings to the Queen of Heaven, and pour out drink offerings to her. As we did, both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials, in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. But since we left off making these offerings to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. And the women said, When we made offerings to the Queen of Heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, was it without our husband's approval? that we made cakes to her, bearing her image and pouring out drink offerings to her? Now, ironically, the queen of heaven they're describing wasn't an Egyptian goddess. No, this was a goddess of Assyria, of, of, of Canaan, and Babylon. That's right. She had different names depending on where you were, Astarte, Ashtaroth, Ishtar. But the point is, they're actually worshiping a goddess of the nation that just conquered them. <clears throat> but remember earlier, we, I asked, like, when God asked, had they forgotten what happened in Jerusalem? And we said the answer was, of course they remembered. Those terrible events are 
the reason they're in Egypt. So what was their reasoning? Why are they doing it? Why are they worshiping a goddess of the nation that just destroyed them? Well, verse 18 tells us that they thought the reason all that happened <clears throat> wasn't, because God not, wasn't because they disobeyed God, but because they stopped worshiping this goddess. That's what they're saying. After everything they've experienced, all the promises and warnings they received from Jeremiah, they think Babylon came and conquered them because they stopped worshiping a Babylonian goddess. That's how deceptive idolatry can be. Let me drag this concept, this, this ability for idolatry to deceive us into the present for you and I. It's like us thinking that the reason we're having financial problems is because we stopped worrying about making more money. It's like us being sure that the reason we're in trouble is because we told the truth about something we did wrong. Idolatry is just as deceptive today as it was 2,500 years ago. Our idols are still very good at convincing us that the reason we're having problems is because we stopped worshiping them. And we're just as prone today to believe them. But Jeremiah points out the obvious, beginning in verse 20. Then Jeremiah said to all the people, men and women, all the people who had given him this answer, As for the offerings that you offered in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, you and your fathers, your kings, your officials, and the people, did not the Lord remember them? Did it not come into his mind? The Lord could no longer bear your evil deeds and the abominations that you committed. Therefore, your land has become a desolation and a waste and a curse without inhabitant, as it is this day. Verse 23. It is because you made offerings and because you sinned against the Lord and did not obey the voice of the Lord or walk in his ways and his statutes and his testimonies that this disaster has happened to you as to this day. As Jeremiah is saying, no, you guys got it totally backwards. It's because of your idolatry that these things happened. Therefore, because of this disregard of idolatry and because of the deception of idolatry, Jeremiah lastly describes the destruction of idolatry. The destruction of idolatry, beginning in verse 24. Jeremiah said to all the people and all the women, Hear the word, all of you, Judah, who are in the land of Egypt. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, You and your wives have declared with your mouths and have fulfilled it with your hands, saying, We will surely perform our vows that we have made to make offerings to the Queen of Heaven and to pour out drink offerings to her. Then confirm your vows, perform your vows, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who dwell in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord, that my name shall no more be invoked by the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, as the Lord God lives. Meaning, what he's saying is, is that you are no longer my people. He says, behold, I am watching over them for disaster and not for good. All the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by famine until there is an end of them. And those who escape the sword shall return from the land of Egypt to the land of Judah, few in number. And all the remnant of Judah who came to the land of Egypt to live shall know whose word will stand, mine or theirs. This shall be a sign to you, declares the Lord, that I will punish you in this place in order that you may know that my words will surely stand against you for harm. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, into the hand of his enemies and into the hand of those who seek his life, as I gave Zedekiah, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, 
who was his enemy and sought his life. C.S. Lewis said, and I quote, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, Thy will be done. All who are in hell are there by choice. For example, back in, in, in chapter 29, God comforted those who had been taken into exile by telling them about the good plans He had for them. That even though they were in exile, His plan was to watch over them for their good, to bring them home. The same, however, could not be said of these exiles in Egypt who wanted nothing to do with God. For them, it was the opposite. In verse 27, God says He's watching over them for their disaster, not their good. In contrast to those in Babylon, God said to these in Egypt, Behold the plans I have for you, plans for your suffering and your destruction. That's a frightening word. And surely enough, within a few short years, this Pharaoh, Pharaoh Hophra, the Pharaoh who they had put all their trust in to, to protect them and keep them safe, was executed. In fact, to put an exclamation point on what God is saying, what, what do we know happened when, when, when Persia finally conquered Babylon? What do we know happened to those exiles? Well, the Persian king, Cyrus, he let them go home. That's what Ezra and Nehemiah is all about. What happened to these exiles in Egypt? Well, history tells us the Persian king Cyrus crushed Egypt, slaughtered all the foreigners hiding there, specifically to emphasize there is nowhere you can go to hide from Persia. All these Jews were intentionally slaughtered to prove a point. In other words, just like God promised, what they feared the most followed them to Egypt and destroyed them. So, great story, right? Maybe a good bedtime story. Well, now that we got this passage under our belts, this is something I want to ask you. What question is Jeremiah 44 begging its first readers, as well as us, to answer. What question does this section of, of God's inerrant word want us to answer? Well, again, the reason I think Jeremiah 44 is such a great way to finish this book is because this chapter is begging us to answer the same question Jeremiah has already asked so many times already. That question is this. Who will you serve? Cedar Springs Church. The Queen of Heaven or the King? Who will you worship? That's the question this passage is begging us to answer. Who will we worship? The Queen of Heaven or the King? Oh, well, that's an easy answer, Pastor Grant. I mean, we don't even have goddesses like that anymore. Okay. What about Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ? I want you to listen to this 
short excerpt from a prayer made today by people who call themselves Christians to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Quote, Behold, O mother of perpetual help, at thy feet a wretched sinner who has desperate reason to trust in you. I praise and thank God who of his great mercy has given me this confidence in you, a sure pledge of my eternal salvation. O mother of perpetual help, grant me ever to be able to call upon your powerful name, since your name is the help of the living and the salvation of the dying. O mother of perpetual help, thou art the dispenser of every grace that God grants us in our misery. It is for this cause that He has made you so powerful, so rich, so kind, that you might assist us in our miseries. You are the advocate of this most wretched sinner. If I but come unto you, come once more to my assistance, for I commend myself to you. Listen to this. In your hands I place my eternal salvation. To you I entrust my soul. That's a prayer made today by people who call themselves Christians. But I get it. This isn't a Catholic church. I'm, I understand that. So what about the Greek goddess Sophia? Anybody know who that is? Sophia was the goddess of knowledge and wisdom. And she surely isn't called by that name anymore, but is education and knowledge worshipped by Christians? Do people, including Christians, place their hope and their trust in their education and their knowledge? How many American Christian parents are more concerned about their child's college choice than they are about their church choice? What about the goddess Aphrodite? Anyone know who that was? Aphrodite was the Greek goddess of sex and love. How many in the church still worship Aphrodite while they're alone? Or what about the goddess of self? I saw this very interesting documentary on France's King Louis XIV. And one of the things that was the most interesting was how they described his bedroom. You see, hundreds of people lived in this palace with him. We'd call it his court. But in his bedroom, there was this short divider, like a, a short uh, rail um, that divided his room almost in half. And this was because Louis demanded his court to watch him live his life. They demanded that he watch him wake up. They demanded that he watch him eat. They demanded that they watch him go to bed and everything that pre and proceeded those events. And the more status you had, the more involved you were in these activities. Like if, if Louis really liked you, you got to take out his bedpan. Now, if you're like me, you hear something like that and you think, how conceited can somebody be? I mean, that is shocking arrogance. But then it dawned on me, what's the point of social media? Is it not people saying, demanding even? Watch me live my life. No, watch. Now. Look at me get up in the morning. Watch me eat lunch. Watch me exercise. Are we really any different than the most self-indulgent, arrogant king of France. That's the goddess of self. Now, there are no idols, there are no statues, except for the ones that are wearing clothes and walking around during the day. 
But we don't see that as the same. It's still the same. Listen, we are still just as prone as those in Jeremiah chapter 44 to make offerings to the queen today, even those in the church. And how does Jeremiah tell us this happens? How does he tell us that all this comes about? We'll look again at verse 15. Then all the men, there's a reason this detail is included. Then all the men who knew that their wives had made offerings to other gods. Again in verse 19. The women say, when we made offerings to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, was it without our husband's approval that we made cakes bearing her image? Men, listen. You are accountable for the spiritual state of your family. You are accountable for this. And this isn't anything new. This is garden stuff. This goes all the way back to creation. When Eve ate the fruit and succumbed to the, to the serpent's temptation and sinned, and then she gave the fruit to Adam and, and he ate of it, who did God come looking for? Adam, where are you? He didn't go ask Eve why she did that. He asked Adam why she did that. There's a question we as husbands and, and young men even, even need to be prepared to answer. We need to be asking ourselves. And that goes like this, based, based not on what you say, not on what you think, but based on what you do. Based on the actions and the activities and the actual objects that you prioritize, what do they say you worship? What does your conversation say you worship? Husbands, what does your attendance at Sunday worship say you worship? What do your decisions about work and play say you worship? Who does your prayer life say you worship? Who does your calendar say you worship? Who does your checkbook say you worship? Who does your alone time say you worship? Now, wives and, and, and even the young women who someday will be wives, that doesn't mean you're not accountable for your own decisions and idolatry. Let me ask you this question. Ladies, how many of you spend more time on Sunday morning preparing yourself to be worshipped instead of preparing yourself to worship? How many of you spend more time on Sunday morning preparing yourself to be worshipped than preparing yourself to worship. As your pastor, I'm admonishing you, women, stop trusting in and relying on and looking to someone or something else for your protection and your security and your comfort. And stop following your husbands into it. Do not submit to your husband's idolatry. If you feel like your husband is looking to someone other than God, something other than God for security and protection, then put the Word of God in front of him and say, that's wrong, and let him have a conversation with his Creator about it through his Word. Because here's the deception of idolatry. Archaeologists have dug up some of these synagogues in Egypt, and what they found in there were several different kinds of statues and idols and things like that, including racks 
to put the Torah. In other words, they hadn't stopped worshiping God. They had simply gotten comfortable worshiping both. This is the deception of idolatry, which means, brothers and sisters, we must be on the lookout for these things because usually they're not obvious. Rarely do we say, okay, I'm a pagan now. I'm going to go find a, a branch or a rock to worship. We don't do that. That's not how this works. No, it's like an accomplished smuggler. Idolatry is usually smuggled into our lives amidst the normal things. Through cultural deceptions, I would even say good things. So who will you serve? Who will you worship? Well, Pastor Grant, I have to say, you've convinced me. I'm glad we're done with Jeremiah too. That's okay. It's to be expected. This is a heavy book. What are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do with the conviction that, that you might be feeling right now? Because listen, this is where idolatry becomes especially sinister. You see, oftentimes idolatry will try to convince us that the solution to idolatry is more idolatry. Meaning idolatry will try to convince us that the solution to idolatry is to make larger idols of our abilities. To try harder, to work harder, to do more. That would make us less idolatrous when in fact it just makes us more. The solution to what we do with this, the solution is the opposite of that. When we want to answer the question of who will we worship, the queen or the king, the solution is not to try harder or to do more work or to be a better law keeper. No. The solution is to get to know the king who worked harder to keep the law for us. For example, Romans 1, it speaks of this idolatry. Paul's writing, and he says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. He goes on to say, What can be known to God is plain in, in, in nature. His invisible attributes, His power, he says, His divine nature, it's all obvious. But he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and foolish in their hearts. They were darkened. Listen, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals. There's the idolatry. What this means is we should receive the wrath of the king because of our idolatry, because of ignoring him, even suppressing the truth of who he is. But Paul continued in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. He said, But now, even though we are completely unrighteous, but now, he said, the righteousness of God has been manifested, revealed, apart from the law, apart from work. It's the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
What about Ephesians chapter 2? I'm just going to show you a few of these because it's all over the place. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul said, And you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, you, in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of power. There's the idolatry. But then he continued, But God, without any impetus, without any desire, without you wanting anything to do with him, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. What about 1 Peter chapter 1? It says something similar. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's kept in heaven for us who by God's power we're being guarded through faith for this salvation that will be revealed in the last time. When we want to know the answer to who we will worship, but we recognize and we understand that we often don't live it, we need to know that king better. That king. When we want to answer this question of who we will worship, but we feel stuck because we know who we want to worship while simultaneously we recognize our propensity to idolatry. There is only one solution to that enigma where we know it up here and we don't feel it down here. There's only one solution to that. Because listen, you cannot force your heart to do anything. You cannot force your heart to do anything. Your heart wants. Your heart yearns. Your heart needs. It doesn't think and recognize logic. That's not how your heart works. That's how this works. Your heart is immune to obligation. Your heart must be convinced. It must be persuaded to feel something. Which means there's only one way we can convince our hearts, to persuade our hearts, to worship the king our minds know we should worship instead of the idols. We need to get to know him better. To convince our heart that he is better than whatever it is we're worshiping. And how do we do that? God has revealed that. He's revealed Himself right here in this Word. If you, if you struggle with idols, if you're thinking this morning, I don't know how to get over it, the answer is sitting in your lap. To teach your heart about the King who is better than anything that could be worshipped. Because the better we know, get to know that King, the better we get to know the King of Heaven, the easier the answer to the question of who we will worship becomes. How can we not worship that king? How can we not worship the king who died in our place to take the wrath that was reserved for us? Convince your heart of that truth. How can we not serve the king who scripture tells us is robed in splendor and majesty because he died on the cross on our behalf? How can we not worship that king? How can we, we worship anyone else besides the King of kings and the Lord of lords who reigns in glory for eternity because He rose from the dead when sin and death could not hold Him anymore? Persuade your heart of that truth and watch your heart begin to yearn the King more than the Queen. How can we worship anyone else 
than the king on that day. When your eyes blink shut for the last time, and you are lying in that grave, powerless to do anything about it, and that king will jerk you out of that grave, apart from anything that you can do on your own, he will rip you out of that grave and place you in glory with him. How can we worship anybody else? Who will you worship, Cedar Springs Church? Who will you serve? I've got an idea. Let's practice. Behold him, robed in majesty, crowned with strength and glory, holy is our king. Behold him, though the waters rage, breakers now before him, tides rush to obey. He reigns when oceans roar, he reigns above the storm. Enthroned on high, the Lord Almighty reigns. Stand with me, please, and let's convince our hearts to worship that king.